Hey y'all, uh, T-Gob back here um, with another, uh, finally the second episode of Porch Poems. I had all this momentum coming out of the hospital um, with some new poems written and was ready to go. Um, and have tried a couple other times, but some um, uncontrollable outside noise, um, a broken microphone, um, some more mental health issues that have kept me away from getting this thing done. Um, but I come today with a heavy heart um, in light of the news that Dean Young has passed away. Um, Dean Young, uh, as many people know, has been my favorite poet for as long as I was into poetry. He was my first favorite poet. Um, he was later my teacher and in some ways my um, guru in a lot of ways. And ultimately, uh, I realized, uh, was my friend. And, yeah, and so I just wanted to take some time and do an episode in honor of Dean um, and reflect on my relationship with him and share some of his work. Because I think he, for me, has been one of the most... Uh, the biggest one of the biggest influences on my life outside of my parents and a few close friends and um, and relationships he he his work and for a while his presence in my life um, really guided um, a lot of my work as a poet but also the work I was doing as a human um yeah, so I was a almost 19-year-old goofball, didn't really know what was going on, didn't know what I was interested in or um, whatnot, and some really nice, uh, cute folks invited me to um, a thing called the Writers' Community at Ball State, and so I was like, yeah, of course, I'll go, so I went, I didn't, I didn't fancy myself much of a writer, I was... Uh, be learning how to be be a reader, an avid reader, um, mostly of nonfiction at the time. Um, but you know the the vibrancy of the poetry in the room and the poetry that folks were bringing in to share both their own and others was incredible. Um, and I remember Todd the faculty advisor for the writers community at Ball State bringing in a copy of the the journal Forklift Ohio um which is an endeavor by uh Matt Hart and Eric Appleby and it's this really awesome handmade journal and Todd brought in this copy and it had a poem by Dean Young and I didn't know who Dean Young was and uh he shared it and read it and it was like being stuck in a tornado of language. There was so much going on. There was so much um, clattering going on. There was so much uh, disjunction. And it really matched. This was the, I now realize it was also around the time my mental illness was starting to kind of unfurl and kind of start to begin to take over my life. And that that chaos that that everything included kind of vibe of Dean's poems 
was immediately appealing and immediately matched kind of uh, the dysfunction that was beginning to erupt in my own brain. So I borrowed some books from the Library of Deans, borrowed some, I think, from Todd, and kind of worked my way backwards, you know, through his work, but then that also led me to his influences, like the French Surrealist and the New York School Poets, who became uh, some of my favorite uh, poets as well. And, um, and there was just something about the wisdom of Dean Young that, that seemed so true. It was a wisdom that was 100% devoted to the art of poetry. And he, towards the end of my time at Ball State, he published, Dean published a book um, on poetry with Grey Wolf Press called The Art of Recklessness, Poetry is Assertive Force and Contradiction. And this is a book, it, I'm looking at my copy now, and it's all the little dog ears. Um, it's just like, it looks like every other page. There's pen marks and pencil marks on on every page. Um and every time I find, every time I read it, which is probably over a dozen times now, I find myself um, astounded by Dean's commitment to poetry and and to that poetry is assertive force, um, and yeah, and that that really just resonates with me. And anytime I loan this book to someone, it it looks like I've in some ways, lit them on fire, um, and they either they find it incredibly unpleasant, or they're, um, or they can lean into it and become excited about it in the way that that it does for me. I remember, I took this book with me when I was hospitalized for a week um, a couple years ago, and I took a couple books of poems and I took this book, and I reread it, and then. Uh, another gal in there saw me reading it and asked if, when I was done if she could read it. She said she was into poetry. And I let her borrow it. And she read it in a day. Um, this 160-some page um, manifesto of sorts. And it's one of those things where you just... I can open it up. And there's always some wisdom. Um, that reminds me of working with Dean, of of the stuff he, he passed on to me. Um, like this, writing poetry isn't problem solving. Our primary job is description, to remark the places in this work that are most intriguing, baffling, that seem most in dialogue with aspects of the tradition and most in revolt against it. Or, let's see, let's just flip to another page. Purposeless is not meaninglessness. I wasn't put on this planet to explain myself. I remember for a, a good year of my life, I had that written on a whiteboard on my kitchen, uh, in my on my fridge. Um, let's see. What else? Um, there's one part in here where just in all caps it says, 
but it's okay to enjoy writing. Poetry need not be a distillation of suffering. Theories about art aren't art any more than a description of an aphid is an aphid. Books of poems should cost $1 and fall apart as soon as you read them. But, so, with this, with this book, and I, I just kind of, it kind of opened up what poetry could be for someone like me, and I, and so I just leaned into it, and I graduated, and I was figuring out what was going on next, and I thought it was time to get a tattoo, <laughs> and I was... I didn't know what to get, but I knew I wanted to get words, word, language. I I love visual art, but the idea of of the impermanence of visual art for me, there's something of always being connected to that image was really difficult for me, but I knew I could find words from someone like Dean, and it ended up being Dean that that I could live on me forever. And I got weird clouds and terrible things happen in clouds tattooed on um, my left bicep um, and my inner arm there. Um, I was in Akron, Ohio with some friends at the time, some poetry friends, and we decided to get some tattoos. A couple of us decided to get tattoos and um, found this great shop and went in and it you know, there was no nerves. There was, I knew these words to be true and to be, um, that they were going to be long-lasting for me. They're from the poem Frottage, um, and from one of, from early on in Dean's career, and yeah, and I'm, I'm so grateful now. I'm starting to cheer up to have those words on me, uh, have had them before his passing and to, and the way that these words actually kind of brought us together. I was at AWP or the writing comp it's a writing conference and I was in Boston at it one year and um, I knew Dean was going to be there and I knew there was a good chance because I had made friends with um, one of his friends Matt Hart and I I knew we were going to be able to maybe be in contact with each other and I just really wanted to meet him so I, at this reading he was there and Matt took me over and said you gotta show Dean your tattoo and I so I went over and Dean goes let me see it and so I pull up my sleeve or take off my jacket and pull up my sleeve and show my tattoo and there's just kind of this quiet between us and it was an amazing moment um meeting someone that I admire so much and I had brought a copy of his first book, Design with X, and my it was a first edition copy, and my my faculty advisor, Todd, at, in my undergrad, had bought it for me as a graduation present, and Dean was astounded. He was like, you, I don't even own a copy of this. Um, and so I explained how it was a really important book for me, too, because it, was, it came out the year... 
he was my favorite poet, and it came, his first book came out the year I was born. And I'll never forget he wrote. He just he took the book and signed it and wrote to Tyler when you were born I was born, Dean. And he hand, slid it back across the table and I said thank you and I said I'll leave you to your evening and I went outside and I opened it and I just started weeping. Um, I I hadn't felt that scene in a long time. Um, I hadn't felt um, that. Yeah, and yeah, and I just wandered around Boston. Um, I think eventually some friends ran into me and found me, um, and I remember one of them, Nick. I I just he saw me crying and he's like, "What's wrong?" And I was like, "Nothing's wrong." Um, it just felt like that was a moment where my life shifted from the dire- the direction it was on, which was I was very lost. I just gotten divorced. I was dealing in secret with this mental illness um, and didn't know what to do. Um, But I knew that I was supposed to write poems and I was was connected to the verb of poetry because of that. And then, as luck would have it, um, my partner at the time... Uh, she got into uh, the University of Texas at Austin the in the New Writers Project, one of the MFA programs there. And Dean taught in both the Missioner Center for Writers and the New Writers Project and, and lived in Austin. I knew that. I knew she'd be working with him. I knew he'd be around for readings and stuff. And when she asked if I would tag along to move down there... Um, I did. I, you know, of course, it was to be with her, to be, to get, um, out of my, to get out of my hometown and spread my wings a little, but also I just, I felt compelled to be near Dean, um, to learn from him in any way that I could. You know, a few months after I got there, I was working at a bookstore called Malvern Books, a really incredible space, um, for poetry. And and they asked me if I would start a reading series, and so I was like, sure. And when I when I when I was thinking about who I wanted on the very first one, I knew I needed someone who people would come to see. I wanted I didn't have the name, I didn't have a name there. I just moved there, and I had a few friends, but I I needed people to come, and I said. I was, I was talking to Dean one day after some other reading, and I just said, would you read for my reading series I'm starting at Malvern? Um, and he notoriously didn't really enjoy readings. Uh, he didn't enjoy going to them. He didn't enjoy doing them that much, but it is part of the kind of role as the poet. And so he, so he agreed to do it, and I watched. There's a video of it if you want to look it up. Everything is Bigger was the reading series, and Dean Young, it's on YouTube. And it's this 13-minute reading where, again, it's just, there's the poems, but then there's the extensions of the poems, which is Dean himself and the wisdom of Dean. And in between each, he just reminds us what we're doing here. And he says in that, he says, 
the two hardest things as a poet is doing the work and maintaining the spirit. And, you know, as I've had a very contentious relationship with poetry and the poetry community over the last 10 years, because of my mental illness and because of other things, um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and what I realize, what I realized I learned from Dean about doing the work and maintaining the spirit is that first and foremost, the relationship with po is with poetry. It's not with the community. It's not with the label of oneself as a poet. It's not with publication. It's with writing the poems and reading other poems. And so I had the great fortune, I think a lot <laughs> at the urging of Dean, I was admitted into the Mr. Center for Writers that following fall to study under Dean. And, you know, I, I, had a, I took a class with him. I think I took a class with him every semester. At least five of the six semesters I had a class with Dean. And there was some poetry studies classes and some workshop classes. And, you know, they were, again, all to the service of poetry. It, wa it wasn't about anything else. The, the poetry studies was, he was trying to infect us with his passion for poetry. We went through all of his favorites, went, went back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, and worked all the way through... We, got into Keats that he loved and Hopkins that he loved and um, the French Realists and the New York School like I've already mentioned and we were just having these poetry studies classes we would just read poems and just talk about them it wasn't in a lot of poetry workshops and poetry studies classes that I've been in and literature classes there's this air of, of knowledge and I've learned through through studying Ramdas and through uh, a lot of Buddhist teachings and stuff the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And f with Dean, it wasn't being in those classes with Dean. It wasn't about knowing everything. It was about experiencing what was in front of you on the page and reporting back. And and then and poetry as a way and the reverse of doing that as well experiencing life and then reporting back and in workshop i remember he always would say it was about description where like in that that excerpt i read at the beginning from art of recklessness we're describing the poems we're not trying to fix anything you know po dean was of the belief that poetry a poem is a miracle. Every poem was a miracle. And and so it wasn't about fixing. It was about noticing what was happening in the poem. And and there's another part in that Art of Recklessness book where he talks about um, in the workshop, the poetry workshop, is just as much about paying attention to what's going on with other people's poems and less less than listening to what, what people are saying to quote-unquote correct your poems. Um, and that was so freeing and just gave us permission to be our rowdiest and most poetry-loving 
and most connected selves. Um, and I'll never forget that. Oh, he always would give these introductions at the beginning of class, um, at, on the first day of class. And there was one, I forget which class it was, but he was just, this whole thing about the importance of poetry and how we're the, how we're the, the carriers of the torch and all this. And at the end of it, he says something like, this isn't exactly what I meant, but it was something like there are 300 white Bengal tigers left in this world. You are those tigers. And it was just um, the absurdity, but also the poignancy of, um, of, the, of his unfettered belief that poetry really, really matters and that we as poets must carry it on. Um, yeah, and you know, and I think back to that last that last year on the fall semester, my ex she published that essay about um, about my illness and about how and about some of my behavior before I was in the Mishner Center, um, and. You know, and that really separated me, as I've talked about before, and I'm not going to rehash it here, but um, separated me from the poetry community, and I was ready to go. If I didn't, I felt that if I wasn't wanted, I didn't, I should just go. And um, Dean was insistent that I stay and finish out the year, work with him one-on-one, and keep writing most importantly keep writing poems and that year I I wrote many poems and worked on my manuscript that eventually became my second book um what is who and it was an incredible experience um to work that closely with Dean um he met with me it seemed like every week to, to talk about new poems from the from the manuscript to read through the manuscript um and again it was just the generosity of his description of what he saw going on in my poems and what he felt connected to in my poems and it was never about shaming me or fixing me either as a person or as a poet but as as just seeing me and that and and that's how it always felt with Dean for me, from the moment I met him, um, to yeah, to those those last days as our as you know as faculty and student, he saw what I was trying to do and saw my good intentions, and um, that kept honestly kept me going during one of the hardest parts of my life. You know, and then I graduated and. I was a swirl in my own mental illness and um, trying to make a living after um, the cushiness of grad school wore off. and So we lost touch a little. But we reconnected this past summer um, as he helped me. You know, he he had said when he retired recently that he wasn't going to do um, letters of recommendation anymore or, um, or blur books or whatever, but... You know, he he wrote he broke that rule for me to write me a letter of recommendation. He knew that the other faculty member 
um, at UT wouldn't write me one um, based on that essay and he and and he did it for me and he's one of the reasons I got into uh, the seminary grad school program here um, and yeah and I, I so I've been thinking back and I was looking back at those final texts we sent to each other and it's, it, some of them were just pictures of like little action figures he had and there was a picture of his cat and some pictures of some gemstones he loved um, he loved rocks and I have the I have a couple on my altar uh, twice for my birthday, Dean gave me these little crystal skulls, and he, um, and and I carry them with you know I I keep them on my ancestor altar with a picture of my grandma with a picture of my grandpa, um, with a little Buddha thing a little Jesus thing, um, these things that have been uh, these heroes of mine, reminders of, of ways to be in touch with the world, um, and, yeah, so these last couple of days have been tough, you know, I've been reading, um, and listening to his work, and, I, and I'm just always in awe of the vitality of, of Dean's work, um, again, Poetry is assertive force. In, an insistence on language as its own mechanism for meaning and for um, and for expression. It's yeah. I'm grateful uh, for the years I got to be in relationship with Dean. And I'm grateful that his work will keep me in touch with him and his spirit for years to come. Um, we'll miss you, Dean. I love you, buddy. Um, and, yeah, I'll read a few of his poems now. Alright, I'm going to read five poems by my dear friend, Dean Young. One of the things about Dean's uh, work is he was constantly interested in um, mythology and storytelling as po in poetry as part of that mythology, um, not as a narrative means, but as um, kind of a um, electric means of of using language, and so this I rem I always remember think of this poem when I think of myth of like modern mythology myth mix in the beginning everything is mingled and joined all the halves hooked up nothing raft or twain no missing buttons no single baby shoes lying by the off ramps in the beginning everything's combined smaller than a grapefruit and that's the first happiness which makes all the later happinesses like thread snagged from a tapestry so fine everything's all smashed together but then along comes coyote and pisses on it then the tickling starts and the dark arabesques the scarlet wheels and none of us can get far enough away from each other and none of us can get close enough 
So these two desires lie on top of each other and make more desires, but some come out mangled, missing wings with angry mouths. There, the despairs. So all these desires and despairs are zipping around looking for parking spaces, crashing into each other, so it's like a big party with ambulances where some signifiers are weeping in the bushes, some are eating the cake's giant sugar rose, and one drinks too much ambrosia and vomits Jimi Hendrix. So the violinists drop their bows and pick up bolt cutters, which helps make pain beautiful, and later more and more gold hammers are called in to make pain really beautiful, which gets Zeus's attention. So he throws down some lightning bolts, which is pretty much his response to everything, vaporizing some cheerleaders, but mostly just blasting holes in the ground, which people use as basements for buildings where they go and invent ways to kill dandelions that also kill, kill ants, and the warblers who eat the ants, then the warblers fall into the river, and the river loses consciousness and has to be put on life support. Then the nurse who's trying to raise two boys and actualize herself. One night opens a window in the river's semi-private room, and there's the void. Uh-oh. She feels pretty dumb opening a window on the void, but now she can't get it closed, and it's making a high lisping. She can't get out of her head, so she tells her group, and they try to sympathize, but each is obviously relieved not to be that fucked up. So she gets used to it, starts to hum along a little, and the place is looking tidier, and she feels almost relaxed. Those appointments, what were they? But all this time, the universe is flitting away, cotton swab by cotton swab, salamander by salamander, Woolworths, old movie stars, whole blocks of the town she was born in, and the window keeps getting wider until it's a whole wall. The ward, east, and by then, Everyone who's left can feel things missing, but not what. Just a sense of empty velvet-lined indentations, sighs and halls, tissue paper, loose chains clanking in streets that lunge into the fog, and then there's a lurch, and the word lurch floats off the last page, leaving behind a single blue line. Then the line becomes a dot, and the dot becomes a hole, and no one knows if that's the first happiness come back or not. But you won't have to lie, your hands won't swell up, you won't have to pee into a plastic cup, blood won't fill your mouth as strangers ask you your name, you won't have to carry anything, it'll be like sleeping, you won't have to worry if you are really loved. Hammer Every Wednesday, when I went to the shared office before the class on the comma, etc., there was on the desk among the notes from students aggrieved and belly up and memos about lack of funding and the chaotic feasibility memos and labyrinthine parking memos and quizzes pecked by red ink and once orange peels a, a claw hammer. There when I came and there when I left. It didn't seem in anyone's employ. There was no room left to hang anything. It already knew how to structure an argument. It already knew that it was all an illusion.
that everything, it already knew that it was all an illusion, that everything hadn't blown apart because of its proximity to oblivion, having so recently come from oblivion itself. Its emphases were already closed. It wasn't my future that was about to break its wrist, or my past that was God knows where. It looked used a number of times, not entirely appropriately, but its wing was clearly healed. Down the hall was someone with a glove instead of a right hand. A student came by looking for who? Hard to understand, then hard to do. I didn't think much of stealing it, having so many hammers at home. There when I came, there when I left. Ball, peen, roofing, framing, sledge, one so small of probably only ornamental use. That was one of my gifts, finding hammers by sides of roads and snow, inheriting one given by a stranger for a jump in the rain. It cannot be refused, the hammer. You take the handle, test its balance, and then lift it over your head. Inverness Gray So what is the cause of death? The inner flying stops. It's mysterious unless there's trauma to organs, bark, or head. A brick falls on a caterpillar. Not much mystery there, but even unhurt. Thriving things seem pointing to their own end, especially if psychology is involved. Smaller and smaller, the sea bashes everything until, voila, sand. It is 10.30, then 10.34, then 40 years later. Time passing is not caused, but the causer. Baby, now in trouble with her credit cards, no more can you ask the friend what you never could. The pier turns to splinters, gown to dust rags, life into not life. Even though everyone already knows, is death a secret that must be told and told? Almost sexual, although so many wires in our minds, it's easy to cross a few. Bend a paper clip back and forth, it breaks, the molecules can only take so much. And Marguerite bent back and forth, scarlet kingsnake bent back and forth, wooden ladder, apple tree, every sunset is a crease. Mother weighing less and less but falling harder. What is the cause behind the cause behind the cause? Smaller and smaller, bodies slamming bodies, bent and bent again until only a few traits remain. Color, cry, residue of dream in the corner of an eye, kiss on an envelope, then the flying flown. To where? Into solar flares? An angel's hair? The next one over there? who's not yet an embryo? Or does it just disperse a spurt, a spark from the flinty gears? So the sea bashes and bashes, and the planes take off and land, and the fluffy mirror chicks waddle off the cliff. This next one was um, uh, is a poem that a lot of people love to um, do their own version of it's called true false and it's um, numbered each line is each sentence is numbered 
True, false. Usually my first answer is correct. Two, I want to break things. Three, I hear voices. Four, I'm good at following orders. Five, I like jury duty. Six, washing your hands six times a day isn't excessive. Seven, I am a good singer. Eight, I never had sex with an animal. Nine, I am fascinated by fire. Ten, sometimes when I'm alone, I cry for no reason. Eleven, I like to have my teeth cleaned. Twelve, there are too many stars. Thirteen, I no longer smoke. Fourteen, I intentionally miss belt loops so no one thinks I'm too involved in appearances. Fifteen, terrible things have happened to me. Sixteen, I would like to design evening wear. Seventeen, a peephole is most effective when you have to stoop. Eighteen, quarks exist only in theory, thank God. Nineteen, our water is poisoned. Twenty, if I were jumping out of an airplane, I'd want to pack my own chute. Twenty-one, my parents were cruel to me. Twenty-two, don't shop at Pottery Barn. Twenty-three, sometimes I get feelings of deja vu. Twenty-four, in badminton, the birdie causes far more injury than the racket. Twenty-six, it is a waste of time to try to understand people. Twenty-seven, I cannot sleep. Twenty-eight, rock and roll change the world. Twenty-nine, Throwing like a girl is proof of physical inadequacy. 30. Sometimes my headaches last for days. 31. Use a number two pencil. 32. I don't mind spending extra time on the flowers. 33. I see nothing wrong with implants. 34. There are more colors now than 20 years ago. 35. I like sponge cake. 36. My wrong answers won't count against me. 37. I am a murderer. 38. AIDS is not caused by a virus. It is the drugs that make people sick. 39. Christmas lights are okay in Mexican restaurants year-round. 40. The cat is superior to the dog. 41. Some of the commandments seem extreme. 42. If you limp with aces, you'll never fold with aces. 43. Everyone should study history because the present is too complicated. No one knows a fucking thing about the future. 44. I would have been a good cowboy. 45. Don't stand so close to me. 46. I could write a novel if I had the time. 47. The homeless are dangerous. 48. Plastic utensils cause cancer. 49. No one asked you. 50. Tony made a mistake getting married. 51. Tony made a mistake getting divorced. 52. Parking meters lie. 53. Stay out of Indiana. 54. There's a number missing. 55. Bicycles keep getting better. 56. Glitter should be strewn, never drizzled. 57. Smashing a modern clock isn't very satisfying. 58. Criminals should be allowed to lift weights. 59. The male pelican is responsible for hatching the egg. 60. Before answering a question, consider who is asking and why. 61. Don't let Mary drive. 62. Most hospitals keep some leeches just in case. 63. Spaghetti is done when it sticks to the wall. 64. Stay with me and be my love. 
65. Spending a major holiday alone. Too bad the zoo's closed. 66. The meaning of every word comes from context, and whereas context is created by other words, meaning can never be fixed, but you can cross the stream on loose slippery rocks without getting wet by keeping a strong forward momentum. 67. Tiny transmitters have been put in my back teeth. 68. We are shadows thrown against the cave wall. 69. I worry about what's happening to the apostrophe. 70. Sometimes I get feelings of deja vu. 71. I wish I was younger. 72. I am an orphan. 73. I play piano. 74. Zinc. 75. I'd like to improve the etiology of my vocabulary. 76. I wonder what happens to my garbage. 77. Here's 50 cents. 78. A woman eating a banana. 79. Everything worth doing has been done. 80. We are number one. 81. There are too many cell phone plans. 82. The night is cold. The wind is sharp. 83. A heart attack is no longer a big deal. 84. A single diamond makes the point. 85. Iceland is the last frontier. 86. It is worse to lose an eye than a thumb. 87. I believe in God. 88. Literacy is higher than ever, but reading is at an all-time low. 89. The policeman is there to help you. 90. I like to have my eyes examined. 91. You can't construct a workable model of the universe using only four dimensions. 92. A baby comes when the mother and the father take a shower together. 93. Earthquake preparedness. What a joke. 94. Crop circles are proof. 95. I often have unexplained pains. 96. I've cooked joints. 97. I wet the bed. 98. I am sorry. 99. Between 10 to 20 percent is always a waste. 100. The results of this test will be kept confidential. And then we'll end with probably one of his more famous poems, but I think also a really important poem for this occasion. Um, I used to use this, my, um, I used to use this poem when I taught third and fourth graders uh, at a creative writing summer camp, and I would uh, take out all the uh, verbs and all the nouns, and they would make, um, and make it like a mad lib for them. Uh, and they had a really good time with it, and so I'll never forget that as well. Um, but yeah, once again, um, let's send our hearts out to all of Dean's uh, loved ones who are and fans who are mourning his loss right now, and let's lift up the great spirit of Dean Young. Elegy on Toy Piano. You don't need a pony to connect you to the unseeable, or an airplane to connect you to the sky. Necessary it is to die if you are a living thing which you have no choice about. Necessary it is to love to live, and there are many manuals, but in all important ways, one is on one's own. You need not cut off your hand, no need to eat a bouquet. Your head becomes a peach pit, your tongue a honeycomb. Necessary it is to live to love, to charge into the burning tower, then charge back out, and necessary it is to die. Even for the grass, even for the pony connecting you to what can't be grasped. 
the injured gazelle falls behind the herd one last wild enjambment. Because of the sores in his mouth, the great poet struggles with the dumplings. His work has enlarged the world, but the world is about to stop including him. He is the tower the world runs out of. When something becomes ash, there's nothing you can do to turn it back. About this, even diamonds do not lie. Thank you.